Welcome back and thank you for joining me again for another episode of Chatterbox Podcast from House of Glumdolls. My product of the week this week is a product brush from Shiseido called the Yanahake Precision Eye Brush. It was only £24 here in the UK and I got it from Cult Beauty. And what I love about this brush, it's a J-Beauty brush. Japanese beauty brushes are very interesting chiseled shapes and really unusual shapes anyway. And I'm very much a big fan of Korean brushes or Japanese brushes. But this one, the Yanahaki brush, is literally almost like a rooftop. So if you imagine two sloping sides that go to a point where they converge, so you get a flat edge. It's that type of shape, like a roof-shaped head, and it's synthetic, densely packed, and it's really, really interesting for fitting along the lash lines or using as a carving brush and getting a really nice, sharp shape. So you could use that for defining the brows, or you could use it for stamping products along the lash lines. It's a really good tool, and I think it will be a really good addition to your brushes if you look out this one. So that's the Yanahaki Precision Eye Brush by Shiseido, and I found that at Cult Beauty this week. Today I'm delighted to be joined by a art instructor and visual artist, Nelson Ferreira. Nelson has been teaching many people through London Museums to develop their eye and appreciation of drawing and painting. He runs personal classes, I've attended those myself, and is a life force and inspiration to many artistic vision about how to draw and get the best out of your drawing and painting skills. So I thought it'd be brilliant to bring him in and ask him some questions about the overlap of being a professional makeup artist and developing our artistic skills through the eyes of an art instructor. Nelson, your daily job is an art instructor and an art educator. Do you believe that everybody has artistic potential? Yes, in the sense that everyone is unique, but absolutely not when it comes to making it real. Uh, you need qualities like hard work, perseverance, uh, integrity. I think there's much more to, to becoming an artist than just having some sort of uh, initial spark that can quickly die out if you don't work on it. The advantage of living in a, in a postmodern culture, although, although I'm not really keen on postmodernism, but the advantage of it is that you can, you can play with your own uh, idiosyncrasies. So no matter, no matter what type of work you do, you, will, you shall have a public, you shall have a voice. Um, the disadvantage, well, there's several, but there's more than one disadvantage, is that you can also produce very low quality arts and, and, and get a critical acclaim. Nevertheless, I, I prefer this multitude of voices uh, to, to the old format of just having one official speech that was acceptable. In terms of everyone having an artistic potential, so the answer has to be probably a yes, that you can, you can play with your backgrounds, you can, you can talk about the culture you came from, you can talk about your life circumstances, you can create some sort of individual uh, speech that will be very surprising and very fascinating to someone from a different background. So I think, I think postmodernism has got this advantage of making everyone potentially interesting. Do I believe in postmodernism speech? No. But it has this advantage. What would you say the qualities are that you feel a good instructor has to be able to nurture others' abilities? Well, it depends on the circumstances. Everyone is, is different. But essentially, a good instructor, under my current understanding, it's someone that, first of all, uh, enforces good, solid technique. Technique has been demonized. A lot of people think they can have a thriving career without technical ability. Um, I'm very critical of that because technique is actually 
100% objective. Everything else is a bit subjective. So I would say a good instructor has good solid technique, has got objective knowledge, um, passes on facts, not only opinions, although opinion is important, but facts are crucial. So you become an expert in the field by learning from that instructor. Together with that, you need, you need personality traits, like you have to be engaging, you have to be, um, you have to pull the classroom. You, 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 need, you need people to love you. Um, it's actually proven that it's, it's the quality of the relationship with your students that will determine how influential you will be as a teacher and not necessarily what you teach them. Um, actually, when I look back, I can't recall one single thing that a teacher has taught me. We just forget. And yet the teachers that have marked me were the ones that somehow I, I respected and I tried to emulate. So I think it's more of an emotional bond than just passing on facts. But I, I have to reiterate that we need to teach expertise and not just an opinion. Nelson, as a painter and somebody defined by visual arts, how can you define the concept of beauty? I mean, what is that from your perspective? At the moment, because my, my concept of beauty keeps changing, at the moment, it's a heightened uh, sense of reality. So it's like looking at reality and seeing something that you've never seen before. I have to elaborate because beauty, beauty transcends this. Beauty, to me, it's very linked with good composition, with, with all the parts fitting together into an, a universe that makes sense within that second that you're looking at an art piece. Real life is full of clutter. Uh, real life is full of insignificant details that just confuse us. To me, beauty is always a, a simplified and more direct image where all the elements heightened the composition. So everything that is irrelevant is removed. And that makes a bolder statement, uh, actually bolder than what life itself can offer us. When teaching people to paint, what are the most difficult aspects for people to really be able to grasp and conquer? I'd say the most difficult aspects for people to grasp and conquer are structure, 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 and structure. Uh, we, we have this tendency, and I say we because I think it's human and, and it's probably ingrained in our DNA. We have this tendency of giving way too much attention to all the details and actually not understanding that a beautiful structure is always what makes a piece of art really sing. So it's almost like nobody cares what you do with the brush as long as everything correlates with everything. And it, it's, it's, you know, the, the creator tends to pay a lot of attention to details, the viewer doesn't. It's actually the structure that comes across. And I, I tend to give an example in class that I think applies to, to art, but to life as well, which is, we, we've been around in this planet for hundreds of thousands of years, maybe millions of years, and only in the last 200 years we started being scientific. So science is actually very recent. And this ability to, to go beyond the appearance of things and look at the structure of the universe took us hundreds of thousands of years to conquer. It's exactly the same in art. When people want to draw, 
they don't understand structure. For example, they'll draw a face with all the eyelashes or, and all the little details in the mouth whatsoever, and they can't even see that the anatomy is totally wrong, that the person looks distorted, that actually if they met, if they met their drawing in real life, they would be horrified with that person. So um, structure is the most important thing. I, I also want to say that any serious artistic training is about developing this ability to fundamentally understand structure. Anyone can draw details. Those are, are very easy to teach and to learn. It takes years of practice to actually learn to see structurally. As a teacher myself, I really think people can sometimes struggle with colour. How do you help people navigate a sense and narrative of colour? It's not easy to, to teach people how to understand colour because colour is essentially a subjective experience. Um, Everyone sees color differently. And if you allow me a little lecture, it might be worth learning this. The problem with colorism, with, with this spectacular use of color, is that only a very small slice of the population will actually be able to see it. So if you could divide people in, in large groups, you have a small percentage are the so-called colorblind, which I, I really don't like that name. I, I, let's call it daltonics. They just see the world differently. They're not blind at all. It's just a different perception. So the so-called colorblind people, the daltonics, will not understand if you used red or green, for example. They, they will mix it up. Uh, for them, it's the same. And then you've got this gigantic chunk of the population, which is about, if I'm not mistaken, is about 75%. They will see most colors, but not all the colors. And they will, they will see red, green, blue, yellow, brown, all the colors, but they will not see very subtle shifts. For example, a red next to a slightly different red. For them, it's just red. They don't see that it's... They might see two shades, but they don't understand why, why you went out of your way in order to, to make this exquisite combination of different reds. To them, it's just red. And then you've got a very small percentage of the population, maybe not more than 20%, that will be sensitive to all the different colors. And to them, color speaks and speaks intensely. Uh, artists tend to belong to this group. We are sensitive to color. The same way that a musician is so sensitive to sound, that if someone sings out of pitch, to them it's unacceptable, but it might not be to the masses, you know. Uh, you have lots of singers nowadays that sing out of pitch, and they're commercially very successful. The same happens with color. So how can I help people navigate color? Mm, I, I, I usually focus into different aspects. I, I reinforce the idea that color is subjective. It's culturally determined, so different cultures will value different color arrangements. Different periods in history, they like different color arrangements. But at the same time, I try to give them something objective for them to think about, my students to think about. And what I have to say is that all colors in the world, the millions of colors that we can see, all the colors in the world are essentially just three ingredients. It's what we call value, so how light or how dark a color needs to be, hue, which is the name of the color. Is it yellow or blue or red? And finally, chroma. Is it a bright, vivid color or is it dull and, and grayish? If you can define the color using these three ingredients, you can actually mix any color. Now, how are you going to combine those colors tastefully? I'm not sure that can be taught. 
that can be nurtured, but it cannot be taught. I've never seen anyone that was insensitive to color become a colorist through training. But I've seen, I've seen most people learn how to mix any color. That can be learned through technical skill, objective learning. But how to make color become poetic? The poetry of color, I don't think it can be taught, unfortunately. Nelson, what has been your most poignant moment as an artist to date? If you allow me, I've got three moments that I'd like to, to talk about because they, they touch different aspects of, of our humanity. Uh, technically, from a technical perspective, and as you recall, I'm a great believer in technique, my most poignant moment was when I was still a student. Uh, I, I was studying in the Fine Art College, and in order to pay the bills, I used to paint and draw portraits. And my client, um, a very dear woman, uh, she commissioned me the portrait of her husband, which I've done. And I was really trying to prove myself in that drawing. I was trying to gather more clientele. So I, I exceeded myself and I really, really produced a drawing that was quite something, so I thought. When I gave her the drawing, I, I recall that she looked at it. Uh, she didn't seem satisfied at all. She put the drawing back into the envelope, she left, and then after, after a day I receive a phone call from a common friend and she asks me, Nelson, are you sitting on a chair? And I said, no. She said, sit down. So I did. And then she said, you know that client that you, you, know, you did the drawing for? She came back and she started telling everybody that your drawing was not real that it was a retouched photograph, it was a retouched photocopy, because it didn't look like a drawing, it looked like an original photo. Immediately, I sank. I thought it was going to be the end of my career, because now rumors are being spread that the drawing is not real. So, but within a few minutes, I gathered myself, I pulled myself together, and I asked for a meeting, a meeting with witnesses. And back then, I, you know, when you're a student, you actually can't afford fixative. So the drawing was not fixed. So I asked the lady to come with her drawing uh, and the rubber. I also asked her to bring the rubber herself so she couldn't say that I chose a special eraser that erases photographs or something like that. She brought the eraser and I demonstrated in front of everyone that it was a drawing by literally rubbing off half of the face uh, through the middle. So I, I rubbed part of an eye the nose and the mouth and immediately she apologized she was quite uh, shocked um, she said that she had taken the drawing to a spiritual healer and even the healer had said that it was not a real drawing i know so uh, it's quite something and while while people were arguing in the room and telling her we always knew it that nelson did the drawing i fixed the drawing in front of them so that at the end they couldn't see the bits that were patched up so the drawing looked totally unified. That was my greatest technical achievement. Um, just to conclude, then one of my friends actually took the drawing to the National Gallery in Lisbon to be authenticated as an original drawing, and so it was. So that was a nice end to the story. My second moment, I'd say, was when I graduated from the Fine Art College. I studied in the late 90s where it was uh, fashionable not to know how to paint. Actually, the teachers were, were 
were, were the painting teachers were telling us that painting was dead. They were meant to be t teaching us how to paint, and they were just telling us not to paint. How neurotic. But um, the whole art world was like that. It wasn't just in Lisbon. London was the same. New York. It didn't matter. It still is a bit like that. So um, I recall this movement is called conceptualism. They believe that only an idea matters, only the concept matters, the execution is not important. I've always been critical of that. I thought, I think execution is extremely important. That's what distinguishes a professional painter from an amateur. So anyone can have ideas, we all have ideas. It's the way we perform them that makes the performance. So essentially what I did was in the final graduation, uh, you are meant to show all the artworks you've produced, and I've shown nothing. I literally challenged my tutors and I said, if what matters is a concept, if what matters is only the idea, then I brought ideas to the evaluation. They went ballistic. It was a jury of three teachers. Uh, essentially, you had one teacher wanting to give me the top mark because he said it was the most bravest thing he had ever seen in that fine art college. Another teacher wanted to fail me, and then the external tutor uh, was trying to negotiate between the other two. Anyway, the story ended with me having to write a report on why I destroyed the arts, etc., etc., which I did. And then finally, when I was awarded my, my, my grades, I donated one of my paintings to the fine arts collection uh, of the university, because actually I never destroyed the art. And this, is what, this was just to prove how easy it is to make conceptual art. It's way too easy. You can fake it. So that was my second moment. My third moment, and to me it's the most important, was recently when a client cried when she saw the completed painting. And I have to say, <laughs> I have to say that clients actually usually do not cry for the reasons that we think they do. I thought she cried because of the beautiful composition or the amazing artistry. No, she cried because of this little detail in one of the sandals of one of her uh, children. So essentially, it's beautiful uh, how we are reminded, as painters, we have to be reminded that we're producing art for humans and art is human which means it, it, it will connect to different people in many different ways, in unforeseen ways. Thinking about monochrome for a second, teach us something here, like how to succeed in a monochrome study. What are the key aspects to establish? The key aspects to establish, especially for beginners, you must absolutely do, do not pollute the lights, do not muddle them, do not make them dirty, and don't make the shadows wishy-washy. I find that beginners are fearful of really making the darks dark enough and the lights light enough. So they end up with this gray sludge all across, all across whatever they're doing. So the beauty of shadow, in my opinion, is that it creates mystery. It needs some sort of drama, generalizing, of course. There are exceptions. But the beauty of shadow, if shadows are not dramatic, if shadows are, do not convey a feeling of mystery, then I think they, they failed their purpose. At the same time, the beauty of light is, is this glowing, glistening quality that, that seems to heighten... It's almost like when you, when you look at a, at a painting or whatever it is that is luminous, it has a spiritual quality to the object. It, it transcends our physical existence. So the beauty of light is this very luminous, clean uh, quality, the opposite of shadow. So I, I believe that it's best to 
create deep dramatic shadows, clean vibrant lights, and then deal with the mid-tones afterwards. So essentially, you want to create a transition between dark and light, but without polluting neither the darks, neither the lights. Avoid en ending up with this sludge that is, is just visually inexpressive. It's similar to, um, Im imagine you're singing a song or, or you're a musician. You really don't want to have always the same rhythm, always the same notes, otherwise you become monochordic. It's, it's not something people want to hear. The same happens with visual, with vision. You, you must create contrast. Without contrast, there isn't usually a visual message to be conveyed. Again, I repeat, there are exceptions. Some images work very well because of the lack of contrast. But I'd rather leave that to experts. If you are training as a student, first master contrast. When you become really good, then you can tweak it to your own liking and create still something visually relevant. Art is such a personal thing. Would you say that art is subjective, objective, or both? Is it both? Definitely both. The way a painting is constructed, from in terms of the act of painting or the creation of an image, is objective. Because there is a process, there is a, a way it's done, and that's totally objective. The way we as viewers interact with that image is emotional. Um, I recall looking at the very same artwork in different days and feeling different things. So in terms of feeling, it's always a unique experience in that moment. I, I, I remember looking at masterpieces and being bored, and then on a different day it just hits me like lightning, and then I see the genius of that image. I wasn't ready to perceive it on the day where I was bored. But different images, they speak to us in different days. The same way that different types of music will appeal to us according to our mood in that moment. So that's subjective, that's emotional. The construction of the art, I repeat, is objective because it's based in knowledge, it's based in objective knowledge, it's based in chemistry, it's based in science, it's based in history, it's based in context, anthropology, you name it. Those are objective fields that can be studied and they are absolutely referenced in facts, so it's not just an opinion. Observation is everything for an artist. How can someone foster their observational skills and enhance them? Salvador Dali wrote this fantastic book on, on painting technique where he actually says that it's essential for you to always find a tutor, find a teacher. And then, and then he says that even if the teacher is not very good, the reason why you always need a teacher, even if the teacher is not good, is that four eyes always see more than just two. And I think it's absolutely truth, uh, true. I, I, I think a very important step is to get proper training. So if you want to learn how to see, you need an expert that teaches you how to see. Uh, some tricks that we do in the classroom is you turn your images upside down and then you have to draw them upside down. Why? Because you don't remember how the universe looks like upside down. So in order to draw that, you have to observe. You can't just draw what you think looks like a tree or looks like a face, because you can't remember how that tree or that face looks like upside down. You've never seen it in real life. Um, other tricks is you end up drawing, for example, you're drawing a curve. And this is something you should learn straight away and right now. Humans cannot judge the curvature of curves. 
it's it's just something wired in our brain. It's one of the limitations of our vision. We cannot assess if a curve is a bit too fat or too squashed. So professional artists, they always shy away from draw, drawing curves at, at the beginning stage of a drawing. They always start with little zigzags that describe the curve, but each of the lines of the zig, zag, zig, zag, must have the perfect angle. It can't be too steep or too flat. And if you describe the shapes by using a myriad of zig, zags, then it's very easy to draw the curve on top with the right curvature. So you've got lots of tricks that you learn in the classroom, but essentially, if you want to learn how to draw, take a course, study it. There's also some books that I, I recommend uh, if you're a painter, for example, and I, I think that applies to all the visual arts, you know, makeup artists, filmmakers, etc. It's a book written in the beginning of the 19th, sorry, in the beginning of the 20th century by Harold Speed, and it's called the Principles and Science of Drawing. It's a fantastic book that will open your eyes to a lot of aspects of drawing and observation. Nelson, how do you view your own creativity? Is there a personal mantra you have about your own abilities and creativity? Oh dear, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even dare talking much about myself because it's, it's an eternal quest for excellence in order to achieve it. So I'd rather quote someone much greater. I, I read a letter that Michelangelo wrote to his friend Giovanni da Pistoia in 1509, before the Sistine Chapel opens to the public. And he literally concludes the letter with this quote, my painting is dead, defend it for me, Giovanni, protect my honor. I am not in the right place, I am not a painter. Now, this, this is incredible. Michelangelo just produced one of the world's most important artworks, the Sistine Chapel, one of the glories of humanity. And he thought his painting was dead. He thought he wasn't a painter. So I find it very important. One of my personal mantras for my own creativity is that crises shall come and we must be ready for them. Every creative person has got moments of doubt. You think you're not good and it's essentially an illusion because even the greatest geniuses, they question themselves. So personal mantra, personal mantra. When that doubt comes, see it as a potential breakthrough for you to push yourself in order to develop and become better. This is episode 12 and this concludes the first series of Chatterbox by House of Glumdors. I hope you've enjoyed these podcasts which give you an insight into the workings of the London studio and here at House of Glumdors, the glam shed where we record them and essentially giving you an overview of the products and techniques and tools and creativity that the studio is about. I look forward to hearing from you if you'd like further podcasts and I hope you'll go back over some of them and replay them for further information you may have missed first time. Thank you on behalf of everybody from House of Glamdors.